Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of Volley. I'm Carolyn April, and I am, as always, looking for my buddy Seth Robinson out there. Seth? Hey, how are you doing? Uh, I'm getting over cold, so um, a little under the weather, but otherwise I'm doing well. I got a surprise text from my oldest daughter this week that she's going to come home for the weekend from college. Oh, so, well, that's good. Yeah, so that's cheering me up. So, so that, was a, that was a surprise. We haven't told her... Uh, we haven't told uh, my youngest daughter that she's coming, so it's going to be a surprise for for Grace when Olivia arrives tonight. So that that's a good that's a good thing. That's helping me deal with my cold a little bit better. How about you? Um, yeah, I, I I wouldn't mind getting a surprise text from my daughter saying she's not going to be around for the weekend. I think she's just <laughs> she's so ready to kind of get on. She's a senior this year, and she's just excited to be moving on and uh it's going to be good for her but you know she, you you went through it a couple of years ago she's in that senior year and uh she's a little done with being at home so um, mm-hmm. oh yeah. i get i get that expressly well you'll get through it don't worry um so today, Seth, I'm excited because we've got a guest, which is always fun when we've got someone on to join us, and we're going to talk about all kinds of things from the channel to emerging technologies with our pal Sal Padalano. Uh, Sal is the Chief Revenue Officer of Lenovo Software, and Sal, I'd like to welcome you to Bali. Thanks for joining. Well, good morning. It's very nice to be here, Carolyn. Thank you, Seth. Thank you as well. Hey, great to have you. Yeah, so, so Sal and I were just recently at an event uh, in Austin uh, the week before last where we talked a lot about some of the issues that we're going to talk about today. So I thought I'd just dive right in and, and talk a little bit, Sal, maybe about what you do uh, at Lenovo Software right now um, as Chief Revenue Officer and you know, in, and in life in general, and then we can get into some specifics about what we're seeing in the channel today. Sure. Um, so the role I play at uh, Lenovo Software, as per my title, Chief Revenue Officer, which is sort of a glorified title that we give uh, sales and marketing executives when they've kind of hit hit the ceiling. I joke about that in some of the presentations <laughs> I do. But I, I'm essentially responsible for anything that has to do with driving revenue, specifically sales, uh, global sales, marketing, customer success team, and channel. Uh, but ultimately, um, I've got to take a hand, as with most chief revenue officers, because this is a, a role that's still being defined. We also have to be able to go across the business, operations, finance, development, tech support. Um, we've got to be able to play in just about every area, which is which is interesting, um, I can tell you, Carolyn, because that, that really is, I think, where the chief revenue officer role is now being defined, um, is really... Um, and again, not to uh, not to toot my own horn, but it really is an individual who has the ability to function and talk across all disciplines within the business. Um, it's not just a sales role, as the name would imply. Um, it really is sort of a um, a stitching together based on experience of all the different functions within a business. So I spend obviously most of my time around the revenue issues, but I'm I'm heavily involved in everything we do from operations, system, infrastructure, finance, development, support, um, only because if you think about it, virtually everything you do at a business does ultimately impact revenue, right? It's the, it's the old joke. There's only two jobs, uh, sales and sales support. So that's what I do. So it sounds like you basically have a lot on your plate, in other words. <laughs> I do, and that's a good thing these days. Yeah, that's true. It's good to be busy. Well, you know, given given what you're talking about here, about the breadth of what you have to do and that everything touches revenue, I think that, that we can segue to the channel because I think one of the things that we talk about a lot recently is how partners out there need to become uh, more 
uh, inclined to do those sorts of things, to be more operational, to focus on finance, to focus on sales, to focus on marketing. I know we've talked about that a lot in some of the presentations I've done and some of the rooms that we've been in recently. And I, so, you know, taking a look at today's channel, how evolved do you think the partners maybe that you work with, and, and you were a partner in the past, so you can talk about that perspective as well, but how close are we to having a channel that is ideally uh, fitted for today's marketplace, whereas they're not just focusing on the technology and the products and the speeds and feeds, but they're really becoming business you know, business consultants? I would have to say that, that it's in its infancy from the channel side. Um, I, I think that the if you had asked me this question five years ago, I would tell you that the overall the channel um, has fully evolved and it has reached a mature state it is saturated. You know, a lot of folks who who started in the channel side of the business 20, 25, 30 years ago are really now actually coming to the end of life cycle like a product, sort of sunsetting for lack of a better term. Um, and I think what's happened is we're now going into sort of the new era. Uh, we're moving into um, an entirely different um, evolution of where partners are going. I, I was quoted not too long ago um, as stating, uh, I believe, anywhere from one third to one half of your existing, you know, what we used to call VARs, right, uh, or channel yeah. partners, will be gone um, in a couple of years. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So if you ask me where today's channel is, I will tell you that, you know, the old dogs like myself who've been in this business a while, if they keep, you know, moving ahead with business as usual, um, they're done for. And I think that's what we're seeing. Um, and I think we're very much in the infancy of, you know, I hate to use the term next generation because it's so overplayed, but we really are coming into the, let's say, next iteration of what a channel partner looks like um, and how a channel partner generates revenue and how they run their business. And what do, what do they look like? What does the next generation or next iteration, as you said, channel partner look like? Well, they, they certainly they certainly don't look like, you know, the model that I grew up in, which was, you know, you're out there um, driving what we would call period revenue, right? You're out right. closing large software contracts, services agreements, you know, moving large hardware contracts and pushing boxes and, you know, doing that every X number of months or X number of quarters or X number of years, recognizing the revenue in the period, knowing you've got the customer locked up for a couple of years or better, whether it's through ELAs, enterprise license agreements or whatever it might be with some, you know, significant on-premise software, moving on to the next one and, you know, going out and, you know, hunting, you know, and basically you're hunting in, in cycles, you know, they're six, 12-month, 24-month cycles. That's gone. I mean, nowadays, if you look at what and, and I don't know that we really know what the next generation or iteration <clears throat> partner looks like. We're beginning to get glimpses of it. A lot of us are studying that, as you know, from the think tank you and I are members of. We're really trying to get our arms around it. But I can tell you a couple of the, a couple of the factors. First of all, um, <clears throat> their revenue model is entirely different. They're looking at, you know, they're, if they're coming off the ground from a cold start, they're looking at things like monthly recovering revenue streams, and first, first and foremost, which is changing their P&L changing their business model. And I will tell you that at a high level, they are insanely focused, almost obsessed, if you will, on managing the account and understanding the account mm -hmm. infinitely more than, than we ever were in the past, Carolyn, mm -hmm. because nowadays in a SaaS world, your customer can churn you and flip you overnight. It's, it, yeah. And it happens all the time. So what I've often said is that um, one of the big changes is going to be around account management and sales motion, right? In the past, your sales reps were able to go in, really develop a relationship, sell the account, and for the most part, not to sound crass, but they could disappear for a while. Now what's happening is 
you've got to know everything about that account. You've got to know where they eat, where they hunt, how they breathe, what they do, what they like, where they go, who they associate. I mean, you've got to know everything about your account every minute because if you're not on top of them and really providing that um, that high-touch environment, then what happens is um, basically you're going to lose them because someone else is going to pay them attention. So we, we've gone from a model where low touch to no touch was almost the accepted norm to now an environment where high touch is becoming the accepted norm. Now, that doesn't mean you're in calling on them every day and taking them out to dinner once a week, but through various automation and marketing tools and social media and communication means and protocols and policies, you are constantly in touch or touching that, that customer somehow. So I think, I think today's partner um, is aware of that. I think they understand the value of social. I think they understand the value of account management more than more than you know the old timers ever did or ever will. I think that I think that's a a big big change. And finally, I would say that today's partners are keenly aware of the buyer's journey. You know that that's a term that ten years ago none of us used. Maybe even five or six years ago we didn't use it. If we did, it was you know it was it was sprinkled in here and there, but. Today, it's all about the buyer's journey. Partners are looking at that, and they're trying to understand from lead you know, to, to close. They're looking at what that buyer's journey looks like and where they fit into it. In some cases, Carolyn, they're driving it, not the vendor. The partner is actually driving that buyer's journey. So it's an entirely different way um, of looking at things. And finally, I would say they're challenged um, by the whole concept of software as a service. Um, the vendors are still tr- trying to figure out um, what the compensation model is for the for the channel, what the role is for the channel, how distribution fits into it. So there's you know there's a lot of folks trying to figure that out right now, and there's a great deal of uncertainty, I believe. Yeah, I just finished a study on uh, on SaaS, and uh, that's certainly one of the things that um, came up is that the the compensation models in particular are uh, tricky for both the vendors and the ISVs to figure out, you know, how to best incent their partners. So, uh, and I don't want to hog the airtime here, Seth, so jump in whenever, but I, I just, just had one. I was say, yeah, I, I wanted to jump in and, and ask a question that is kind of a, above the, the entire discussion here. And Carolyn, you and I have talked about this. Sal, I'm wondering if at Lenovo, you're beginning to change your language uh, around the, the types of firms that are helping you with the products that you have. I, I think that we have talked a lot about, like you said, evolution of the channel or iteration of the channel, or we've mentioned that there's an adjacent channel. And, and I think that the reality is that for a long part of the IT industry, there was a description of the ecosystem of third-party firms that were helping move product, and we called that the channel. And all of a sudden, there's been a step function, like almost overnight, you've got digital marketing firms and maybe firms that are doing finance for their end users that are, that are helping move software and maybe even helping move hardware. Uh, but they, they never thought of themselves as an IT firm or a VAR or a solution provider. And yet, if we now look at this ecosystem from vendors all the way down to the, to the end user, they're all part of it. Uh, and so I'm wondering how much of your description applies to what we traditionally called the channel and are you guys starting to use new terms or, or how are you describing the overall ecosystem today? Well, I think, I think you've touched on something um, that, that, that's really the crux of what's going on here, Seth. I really think this is the, one of the central pillars to the whole situation. How a channel partner goes to market today is entirely different. And, and you're absolutely right. We're using you know, a host 
of vendors and services that you know that that have not been used in the past. They're sprouting up on a on a regular basis, particularly around marketing automation. And I don't just mean you know the stuff we do with Marketo or campaign managers and Salesforce and things like that. It's going it's going way beyond that. You know, in the in the past, for example, a channel partner was happy to take content from a vendor, you know, sort of rebrand it a little bit, put it up on their websites, build some collateral, use it in their sales presentations. Today, there's none of that, right? Everything a, a partner builds today is their own branding. Um, they're not looking to bring stuff in from, you know, a vendor's websites. They're not necessarily looking to leverage your branding. It all has to be their own. And, and there are now, you know, a host of companies popping up, almost all born in the cloud, uh, a lot of them are startups that are going to the channel and they're saying, look, we can come in and we can help you do things you've never had to do before. We can do it economically. We can do it very efficiently. Um, we could start it almost immediately and we can show you results. So I think really what I'm saying is that the dependency back on the distributor and the dependency back on the vendor um, is diminishing rapidly. Um, rapidly. So, so partners are sitting back and saying, hey, you know, I can no longer rely on this large vendor to bring me leads, to help me with this, help me with marketing, help me with, you know, my sales motions and, and deal progression and things like that, um, or, or even the, distribu the distributors. Um, now, the distributors are making, you know, a pretty aggressive shift, and they're trying to figure out what their role is in all of this. And I think they're becoming, again, my opinion, I think the distributors are becoming more of a uh, a support organization um, and potentially even a finance organization more than they've ever been in the past. You know, they are in the past. A distributor became a surrogate to your vendor. Right? When a vendor said, "Look, I can only handle my top ten partners," big distributor comes in and says, "Fine, we'll handle the other ninety percent. We'll handle the touch with them. We'll handle keeping them sticky. We'll do all provide all the services that you just can't do." And that was a great model for many many years. But the channel partners are coming back now and they're saying, you know, we need something very different here. We don't need you to act like a vendor. We don't necessarily need the vendor other than the product. We we need an, another set of services. So the real question is, how quickly will the distributors step in and begin to provide those services? Or will a lot of these startup and born in the cloud companies that are popping up all over the place come to the channel partners and say, look, we got you covered. We can give you this feature, this function, this service. We can help you, you know, drive social. We can build your SEO. You know, we can set up some of your automation. We can help you with retention. We can help you with high touch communication. Um, it's, it's, you know, when I say it's dynamic and it's fluid, it's, it's moving at a rate and pace that, uh, honestly, I mean, a lot of folks can't even keep up with at this point. What's interesting here though, Sal, is from a vendor perspective, as the channel becomes more self-sufficient, as you said, and they're relying on their own brand, and they are less dependent on the collateral and the and the name brand of the vendor. How do you morph then, in terms of the program offerings that you have? Um, are you, do you pull back on what you're providing partners? Do you do you extend it to different things? Obviously, there's going to have to be some change on, on on the vendor side if indeed we are seeing a channel. Both the new players and hopefully some of the older players uh, are essentially becoming uh, a much more independent operators? I think there's a very simple answer to that, and then you can dive into some of the complexities of it. But the simple answer is I was, I was an IBM business partner for 16 years, right? I, I, ran, uh, I ran a shop of about 175 people that we, we built up um, before selling and moving out of that business. But um, what I would say to you is that at the end of the day, a channel partner, all channel partners, the one thing they have in common is they're all driven by one thing, 
right? And that's the margin uh, that they're going to put in their pockets, right? At the end of the day, if, if, they, if they're worth their salt, they realize it's all about um, cash flow. At the end of the day, that's what it is, right? It's not how much money you make. It's how much you keep and what your operating, cap- operating capital looks like. And if you can, if you start by looking at how the partner, how that channel partner will make money with you, Right. If you what I advise a lot of my um, channel account managers to do is to dig into the P&L, understand your partner's business model intimately, be able to bring up and look at their P&L, whether they're a small shop or a big shop, and be able to point to the areas in that profit and loss statement where you're going to help them, where your your model, right, what, what you're doing as a vendor, even as a distributor is going to improve the numbers in that P&L, because that's. In the old days, it was about margin. If you could put together a really aggressive margin program where a partner could look at this and say, shoot, I can make 50 to 55 points on this, you know, and and I can do it by investing this much back. You had their attention. You certainly had my attention when I when I was running that business. I don't think a lot has changed there. I think that's the starting point. It's figuring out a healthy financial model where a partner comes to you and says to you, Carolyn, how am I going to make money? And you show them. Everything else to that, I, I again, not to sound you know crass or trite here, but I think everything is second to that. If you can show, if you can show a partner two things, right, and they're simple. What's it going to be like working with you as a vendor or a distributor? And two, how are they going to make money with the product or service that you offer? Those are the first two questions that always come up. I don't care if it's a SaaS offering on-prem offering. I don't even care what the product is. We sat in many meetings at my old company where after after the vendor came in and pitched us on the solution or the product, we'd get together. And those were always the first two questions. And if you could get a yes to both of those, these guys are going to be great to work with because they understand our business and they're going to they're gonna work with us. And two, mm-hmm. we can make money with them. Everything else became secondary. So my focus right now is still on being able to show the channel partner that if they work with us, regardless of how they work with us, my branding, your branding, my vendors, your vendors, regardless of what it is, co-selling, you know, ind- independent selling, I don't care. If I can show you how you're going to make money, I have your attention. We can work through the rest of the details. That's that's my simple position. That's perfect. Sal, another thing that I think is really making all of this even more complex than we've already described is that there's uh, so much new technology and, and companies are wanting to do more with technology. And so what might have once been a little bit of a fringe element, I think, is becoming more mainstream and, and people are really exploring a lot of new things. And Moore's Law has just kept cranking and cranking and all of a sudden all of this new stuff is on the horizon and people are looking at it. We've been doing a study on emerging tech, and we've got about eight or ten technologies tucked into that that we're trying to look at. And I'm kind of wondering what your thoughts are on that. It seems like everyone loves talking about emerging tech and the new stuff. But in practice, I'm wondering how many companies are really ready for it because we have seen cloud just shake up the, the way that IT operates and I still see a lot of companies trying to wrap their arms around that, which is kind of a prerequisite for a lot of these new things that might be coming like AI or blockchain or whatever. So what are you seeing? Well, first of all, I, I think I think there's a ton of hype around AI and some of the other technology that's out there. I was involved, you know, on a lot of what went on with the Watson project. You know, it's amazing stuff, um, not to mention names, but 
everyone knows about it. I mean, amazing things that IBM is doing. But every now and then we get ahead of our skis, and I think that's where we are. But I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I believe happens with technology. I think you reach a point where you start to very quickly hit diminished diminished returns on the technology. You know, everybody and their brother, is, you know, finds they jump on a bandwagon, and everyone's got the next best this or the next best that, and and the the channel partners who are able to sift through that and really determine you know what's going to help them and what isn't and not get caught up in the hype cycle will will do the best it's like investment you know investment bankers will tell you if for some reason they miss this deal there'll always be another deal right sort of a sort of a glass glass half full you know half empty attitude but that's how they look at things i think we have to look at that with the with the volume of technology we're being hit with you know the key is adoption Right. And not going after the gadgets. Now, we're all technology geeks. Right. And I say that, you know, in the most loving way possible. But we are. And, you know, we always want the latest and the greatest. But you know what? There comes a point in time where you've been at something long enough. You realize, yeah, that's that's kind of cool, but I don't really need it. Right. It's like loading your car with gadgets or having, you know, gadgets in your home where your refrigerator tells you when you're out of milk. Some people think that's great. But personally, it starts to get what happens is our technology begins to surpass our humanity. Is, is really where we end up. And I think that adoption is probably, my guess would be, Seth, that when you look at this, you're going to find adoption is probably a lot lower than you think by the partners who are successful in running their business. I, I really, I really truly believe that. Um, so I think, like I said, I think there's a point of diminished returns, and I think we're there in a lot of areas. Um, and I think a lot of um, vendors and small startups are jumping on bandwagons. And I think it's going to be, you know, like the restaurant industry, you know, you know, two years and out, right, two years and out, I think we're going to see a lot of that. So my advice to, you know, partners who are out there, whether they're new to the industry or, or they're converting an old model to a new model, I would just say, you know, you know, buyer beware, right, be very, very cautious with where you place your bets and your investment because everything comes down to ROI. So technology may be great, on the surface it may look fantastic, but at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is return on investment. And what I tell my marketing team is, for every dollar that they spend in marketing, I expect to see a 10, I'm sorry, I expect to see a 30X return in pipeline. It's a very simple formula, right? Go spend 100,000 in a campaign. At minimum, I expect a $3 million Pipeline. That's SQL, not MQL, right? Sales qualified leads coming in, and that's a KPI in all of their um, in all of their comp plans. And I think the same is true of the channel partner. If you're going to go out and you're going to buy something, stop for a minute and ask yourself, what's my true ROI going to be on this? And and do I believe it? Do I really buy that? Do I do I truly believe it? And the other thing I tell my team, and I told this to all of my employees when I ran my last partner company through 2007, I said, if you're going to go out and spend money, ask yourself a simple question. If you had to write a personal check for whatever you're investing in, whatever you're buying, whatever the campaign is, and I told you, you could keep the return on what you're doing, would you write the personal check? I cannot tell you how many times they came up with ideas and ideas and shot them down. You know, 35,000, if it was your money, Seth, and you're projecting, a, you know, $350,000 pipeline with a 10x return, you know, 10x, would you do it? Would you actually do it? And I think that's still a question. It's an age-old question. I think we, sh I think partners should be asking themselves that when it comes to technology and latest and greatest. Yeah, I, I really like the way you put that, that 
there, there's a different way of looking at this stuff now that our, our intensity and, and the aggressive nature that we want to approach technology, now that that's changing. I, I think we have some uh, uh, mandate and, and some responsibility to be looking at the new technology in, in a little bit more aggressive way and be considering it. But then there has to be a practical side too. And, and we can't get too far over our skis in, in thinking that we're going to be plugging in all of these things overnight um, and, and there's going to be a lot of adoption curves to them and a lot of challenges and, and so there has to be some mix of being aware of the new stuff maybe in, in a, a different way than people had been before but still remaining <coughs> practical on it and, and still figuring out what's going to provide value to the business. Mm-hmm. I agree. I had a, a different type of question for Sal. Sal, I understand you like cars. Mm-hmm. Not to throw you off base. So I wondered, because I just got a new car, and you just mentioned technology, and I realize I have this, like, nav thing and, and all of this buttons and knobs and everything, and I, I will never, ever use half of it. Not Maybe not even half of it. I won't use 75% of it. So I, you kind of hit home when you mentioned that about, you know, maybe we are a little bit uh, over uh, our skis when it comes to technology. But when it comes to cars... So this is more of a personal question. What is your what is your Mount Olympus of cars? <laughs> that's um that's well, I, I've I've collected muscle cars from the '60s for about 20 years, uh, primarily first generation Camaros. And anyone who's listening to this who knows anything about them, they know that essentially the car is um, a steering wheel, two pedals, um, and a shift. And essentially, that's it. There's no airbags. You know, if you have a front-end accident, the engine's in your lap, um, pretty much how it works. There's no seat belts in the back seat. So I'm a bit of a purist when it comes uh, when it comes to cars. Um, but I'm also a big convertible fan. There's not too many cars you can show me if they're convertibles I'm, I'm not going to like. Um, in terms of my preference, um, I like cars that are well-engineered. Um, same, it's the same way I feel about software now that I think about it or just about any product I buy. I would rather not get something unless it's, you know, very well engineered and something that's going to be reliable. It's going to hold its value that I can count on is dependable. You know, I, I love pens. I love mechanical pencils and I like the, the real high end ones. I get a, I get a kick out of it. You know, I'm a fan of uh, watches, um, you know, with really, you know, uh, you know, out of the world movements and Swiss movements, I get a kick out of that. So, you know, I tell you, I don't have a, I don't have a preference right now, but I can tell you who I think's building some amazing cars right now. I mean, clearly, um, uh, Audi's building some great cars. Uh, I think Infinity has really stepped up their game uh, quite a bit. You know, Mercedes is is Mercedes, and BMW is BMW. The challenge is maintaining. You know those cars. Every time you go into the dealership, it's two thousand um, dollars. You know, obviously, if it's if it's not under warranty. But at the end of the day, I think the same value proposition holds for automobiles as it does for anything else we do in life. You know, depending on your generation. You know, millennials feel a little differently. Um, although I will tell you, having them in my family and having a bunch of them who work for me, um, they they agree with you. You know, they they feel like in many cases um, what's coming out in today's technology is overkill. And whereas you would think, you know, that generation would embrace it more, um, from what I see, they're not. They might use a few more features than you and I, you know, do being in a different generation. But I think everyone agrees. I think everyone you talk to is like, this is starting to get a little ridiculous now. You know, we're, we're starting to tr- – we're trying to find uses we, for technology that – 
you know, really in practical terms, don't make a lot of sense. They, they just don't, but we're doing it anyway. And, and the reason for that is, you know, as I say, we're, we're, our, our technology has surpassed our humanity. So my advice to you on the car is, you know, keep away from the stuff you don't understand when you're driving um, because it's distracting. <laughs> um, but, but other than that, um, I, I'm an engineering guy. I mean, I, I want things that are well-engineered, that have been thought, you know, that are thoughtful and thought through. Um, I'm not, you know, like, for example, the, the, the Tesla, you know, I mean, I've looked at them and I've, I've test driven a few of them and I still don't see the, again, unless you're in, insanely wealthy and you're going to use it to go buy groceries or head back and forth to the office, you know, a car at that price point that you really can't charge anywhere. It's 300 miles. Um, to me is still quite ridiculous. Now that's a place to apply technology, get that to the point where, you know, you can do 650, you know, miles on a charge or more and start getting charging stations up with all the gas stations. And now it starts to make practical sense. But until then, you know, you're, you'll not see me driving one. Good, good closing thoughts. I think Sal. Well, listen, I, uh, I really appreciate you joining us. These were great insights. I think, uh, we share a lot of the same thoughts when it comes to the industry. Seth, did you have any final words? No, I uh, really appreciate you being on, and uh, I'm, I'm sure that we'll have many more conversations with you in the in the future. We hope I look so. forward to it. I look forward to it. Thank you both for having me. Thanks, Al.